Heroes first. Veterans together. Legacy forever. I want to thank you for joining me on this journey of getting to know our heroes on a much deeper level. I am your host, Josh White, and this is the Hero Front Podcast. Let's get after it. Okay, so we're going to put DD through the Hero's Gauntlet. Three questions that I'm going to spontaneously just throw at her. First question, what is your proudest Air Force moment? Oh, goodness. Um, I think I was most proud. I think that, I think when I look back at, like, you know, 25 years, there's so many moments that really come to mind, but the things that make me most proud of my service as a whole are the moments where I got to witness someone recognizing and stepping into their own gifts. Those moments when you could see someone finally see the amazing individual that all of us watching them so often saw, right? As individuals, we don't always see the fabulousness that is us and others see us and think like, wow, they've got it all together. Wow, they're doing amazing things, but we don't always recognize that ourselves. So the moments when I look back in the Air Force and I think those are the moments I'm most proud, it was when I was able to be a part of a moment where someone saw their greatness and were able to step into it. Like those are the moments I loved that when I look back and think that's what I'm gonna miss, like those are the moments I'm gonna miss. That's beautiful. Does anyone come to mind in particular? Um, you know, uh, we were talking earlier uh, as we were kind of getting to know one another. And when I was a group commander, I would go out and about, you know, just to talk to airmen. And often I'd find myself like in the center of this circle and everyone would kind of be staring at you and it can be somewhat uncomfortable as a commander to like to always have to be on, always have to have the right thing to say. And so I started doing this thing where I would ask an airman and I would say, what are the three unique gifts you bring to our air force? And you know, just kind of like you looked at me, I'd get this like deer in the headlights look, you know, I'd be like, right. Lisa, what are the three gifts that you uniquely bring to the Air Force? And, you know, Lisa would just stare at me like, uh, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to say because we're not used to bragging on ourselves, yeah, right? Like, yeah. I'm really good at, I'm really good at this, this, and this. And they would often get really stuck and they'd give me one and I'd be like, that was one. And then I'd just wait, <laughs> you know, and there'd be like this <laughs> awkward moment. And then Sometimes if they'd get stuck, I'd be like, hey, Bob, help Lisa out. Like, what are the gifts you see Lisa bring to our Air Force? And Bob would say, and I'm using random names, right? But Bob would say, well, man, Lisa is always the one that checks on everybody. Lisa is always the one who reminds us of those moments where we need to come together. Or Lisa is always the one I can count on when stuff is hitting the fan to really be calm, cool, and collected. And then I would be like, Lisa, did you know that that's what people thought of you? And so often I would just get the answer, like just almost like this shock of no, because we don't ever hear those things that others see in us. And um, 
I would say, what did that mean to you to hear it? And all too often, they'd just be like, I mean, sometimes people were, you know, would tear up and they'd say, I'm, it was just so wonderful to hear. And I would say, Bob, what was that like to share it? And even Bob would say like, that just felt really amazing to be able to acknowledge what people are doing. And I can't tell you how many times I would get an email or sometimes, sometimes people even set like old fashioned cards, you know, or they'd come up and they'd say to me like, thank you so much for either asking me to identify what it is I'm good at, or more often than not, it was the people who had the opportunity to share the goodness they saw in others, like they were as affected. And so it happened so often that it became kind of like a drug for me where I would go out and I'd want to have these moments where I would get to see people step into that. Um, so there's too many to identify like a specific person, but those were the specific moments that I was like, this is what life is really about, which is not just the Air Force, not just leadership, but like, how do we collectively help each other see the goodness and the gifts that we have to contribute? Yeah, that to me is gratitude. Exactly what you said. Remember, you know, we were talking offline. I said, I struggled with what gratitude looks like to me. Yeah. And exactly what you said is how I see gratitude. Like mm -hmm. it's, and you said you were addicted to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get addicted to the joy that you see other people experience. Yeah. I love that. And I love that you created that space. Cause like, there's never a good time to just take a knee and talk. like on paper, there's always the mission. There's always work to be done. So like, sometimes like as a leader, you have to step in and say, pause and just have that conversation because there's no other time to do it. You know what I mean? It's not mapped out in your daily things to do list. You right, just got to right. make it happen. Here's the hard part. I would go out because I noticed after a while I started, you know, I tweaked it every time I went out. And so I would go out and I would say, Bob, tell me three things you're working on. And Bob would say, well, I'm trying to be a better, I'm trying to be a better listener. I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be uh, a better runner. And so we can very quickly identify, like within seconds, they could give me three things that they perceived as shortcomings that they needed to work on. And so I started asking that question first, like, tell me three things you're working on. Tell me three things, you, you know, you want to improve. And they would rattle off three things right away. And then I would say, then I would say, tell me the three things you're really good at. What are the three gifts you bring? And then they'd still get stumped. And so seeing the juxtaposition of we are so quick to judge ourselves and identify the areas we struggle or the areas we are less than perfect and just don't take time to identify the strengths and skills we have. And the problem in that is that the research shows that the most effective leaders lean into their strengths. So if we're not helping airmen identify what are their strengths, we're actually missing opportunities to maximize the potential they have. But we don't have those conversations because we really pride ourselves on humility. And we think that acknowledging the good things about us and acknowledging the strengths we have and the skills we have and the gifts we bring means we're not being humble, but they're really two entirely different things. I can put myself on the same level as others and be on the same other level as others as humility, 
that doesn't mean I should hide the gifts I uniquely have and the strengths I get to bring to whatever problems we're facing. But we don't know how to we don't know how to balance that tension all too often. We say, ah, to highlight the good things about me means I'm not being humble. But it's like it's a big fallacy because greatness comes when we not perfect our weaknesses, but when we lean into our strengths. Yeah, I was on the path of perfecting my weaknesses for many years. And I got to say, it's not as fun as capitalizing on my strengths. No. <laughs> your strengths I mean, are what you enjoy. I mean, yeah. it's it's what you are drawn to, what you gravitate towards. So to deny that is is not good. Right. No, I'm right there with you. Like, yeah, I used to never talk or speak my mind or anything, but that's one of my strengths. That's something I love to do. I love, I get so much energy sharing my thoughts with others and I always withheld that. Yeah. And then, I mean, now I'm doing this podcast and I get to do it all the time. So it's great. <laughs> I might have to start my own podcast. No, 100%. no one will listen, but <laughs> I'll listen. You got one, you got one right here. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. How many questions did I ask you? Wow. Uh, was that one? I think that was one. I kind of wow, took over. One. Sorry. No, 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 you're good. That's the best kind of guest. Um, okay. So question two, what quote do you live by? Um, this is on video so I can show you. This quote, this is a card that was given to me when I was a second lieutenant. And um, this card was given to me by General Gene Renuart. He was the wing commander of the 347th wing at Moody Air Force Base. And on one side of the card, it's laminated. On one side of the card was our mission uh, of what the mission was at Moody Air Force Base at the time. It was a long time ago. Uh, you know, I was a second lieutenant, so we won't go into dates. Um, and on the other side of the card is the man in the arena quote. And I would say that this quote probably more than any has shaped my life because it not only it not only represented for me how I wanted to show up and how I wanted to live my life. Like I wanted to do the hard things. I wanted to step into the arena. I wanted to be brave with my life. I wanted to get back up when I fell down. I didn't want to be defeated by those falls. Um, and I wanted to know that even if I failed, I gave my best. But it also really changed my life for the fact that while this was my aspirational self, it wasn't always my, it wasn't how I showed up. And so I aspired to live like this. And I knew all the time I wasn't living like this. And it was that realization that when I saw Dr. Brene Brown's TED Talk in 2010, it was that realization that led me to really hear what she was saying about what it means to try and to be vulnerable and to open ourselves up, even though we may risk hurt and pain because courage really comes from opening ourselves up to that. Like you cannot be courageous unless you first open yourself and your heart up to disappointment, into failure, into defeat, into falling, uh, or open it up to falling. So uh, I would say it's also this quote, you had asked me in an email, like how I wound up in Dare to Lead. Um, I had this quote in my pocket when I met her, and I pulled this quote out to tell her 
that you know, you know if you if you're familiar with her work in the book Daring Greatly, that book uses this quote a lot. And I pulled this quote out and I told her what I just told you that this quote symbolized for me like who I wanted to be. And I knew I wasn't living up to it, but her work gave me the language to understand why. And her work gave me a language to be compassionate with myself enough to know that I'm a work in progress. And even though I may not be living up to it right now, doesn't mean I won't someday and to keep trying. So this card right here has symbolized my life quote, kind of, and the path I'm on now. And then I would say as a leader, also a Dr. Brown quote is, you know, a leader must spend a reasonable amount of time attending to fears and feelings, or they will squander an unreasonable amount of time trying to address ineffective and unproductive behavior. And that quote for me basically sums up everything I know about leadership. And yeah, then the third I love quote, that. That second one that you said, I, I listened to some of your stuff earlier where you brought that same quote up and I, that just nails it, doesn't it? That yeah. just puts it in perspective. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, if you look at all of the challenges we are trying to address in the Air Force, whether that be the challenges we face with, you know, the, the suicide rates, whether it's addressing diversity, equity, inclusion, and the racial tension we're seeing in our country, whether it's trying to address how do we build leaders that don't fall into the trap of toxic leadership, all of that is attending to fears and feelings or squandering time on ineffective and unproductive behavior. And the problem is all of those things are a product of a root cause that is based in fears and feelings that we don't know how to address. And we're not taking the time to learn how to address because we have, we have prided ourselves on stoicism and compartmentalization. I would say up until recently, I think there's a huge pocket of people in our Department of Defense as a whole that are really trying to shift that, but there's a huge pocket of resistance to it because it's not what we know. It's not what we've been taught. It feels squishy you know, attend to fears and feelings, like leave that stuff at home. Like we're at work. We don't talk about fears and feelings, but our culture and the things we're seeing and the challenges that are consuming so much of our time, they are telling us in the stats that we have to learn how to attend to the fears and feelings. Otherwise we're never going to be able to address those challenges, period, dot. Like, yeah, it's called being human. And the more we try to act like that's not the reality, We're human. So you can't quantify everything on a piece of paper and and capture everything on a PowerPoint. Like at some point, we're going to just have to talk. Yeah. I mean, this is the Air Force I want to be a part of. Like I, when I joined, it was everyone pretend to be perfect. And if you ask for help, oh, there's something wrong with that guy or whatever. Like I'm in counseling and I tell people that. Mm. Why? Because I, I want to, talk to someone that's not my wife or my parents where I can get that, that unbiased feedback and it's healthy. It's healthy for me to work through those problems and to identify them and face them instead of try to ignore them and hide them. And I don't know. I feel like I've been waiting for this day ever since I joined, you know, Mm. this is what I've been waiting for. So I'm going to do everything I can in this last 
possibly last four years of my career to, to push that message. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like we need more people who like are not afraid to try something different and who are not afraid to lean into the, the hard stuff. Like, cause it's hard. It's really hard. You know, I was talking to someone today, you had said you're, you got counseling and, um, they were asking me kind of like, what was your path? How did you get here? You know? Um, and so in 2014, I did my squadron command in Iraq in 2010. And to say, I, to say I showed up totally unlike I wanted to show up is an understatement, right? Like I had this idea in my head, like I was going to be this amazing leader and I was going to be kind and compassionate and I was going to be so inspirational. I really thought I was going to be inspirational. And, um, and I showed up as, you know, short and sometimes micromanaging and, oh my gosh, passive aggressive. Like with, I have a PhD in passive aggressive, you know, I can, I can whip out passive aggressive and nobody's in, like nobody's business. And I left that experience feeling like, man, I just sucked. And I don't ever want to do that again. Like that was painful. Like, no, thank you. And then I, stumbled into actually, it was never intentional, but I stumbled into the coaching program at Georgetown University because I was going to be there for school. And I was like, well, I got some time on my hands. I'll, I'll take another course. And so I found this course in the catalog executive leadership coaching program. And I thought that sounds cool. And so I applied for it and got in on a fluke really. And I remember sitting there the first day and I was like, oh, these are my people. I didn't even know I needed these people, but like, these are my people because we were having conversations about what is going on in us that results in us showing up differently than we think we will. And why do I know information, but have such a hard time applying that information? And so I loved the program and about halfway through the program, I got really mad at the Air Force. And let me just clarify real quick. Like, I love the Air Force. It's my heart. And I will probably cry at least three times in this podcast because I, <laughs> I loved it. I missed it. I miss it. It's, it's everything that allowed me to step into who I am today. Um, but, you know, it's a relationship like any other relationship. And some days you get a little peeved. And this particular day in 2014, I was really pissed because I was like, squadron command was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And no one had, no one had the real kinds of conversations I needed to hear. I think most of us need to hear before we step into that space, how hard emotionally it's going to be, how draining emotionally it can feel, how alone you can feel at times how unprepared and unequipped you can feel because squadron command, probably much like when you step into an NCO position or a senior NCO position, these are incredibly stretching periods in our careers where they take us from the person we were to the person we need to be, which means we're not totally equipped. We're not totally skilled. We're definitely not practiced. And so it was really hard. And I was having all of these coaching conversations as I was going through the program where I was like, why aren't these the kinds of conversations we're having in our Air Force? 
why did I have to do this thing that was so hard and yet feel so unsupported? I will never again not be there to support a leader who needs it at any level because leading is hard as shit. I'm sorry, I swear, but (laughs) it's as hard as shit. And we need to be supporting each other more in it versus judging and critiquing each other. I don't want to tell my squadron commanders, this is what you need to do. What I want to ask them is, what support do you need to do what you think is best to do? Right? Like, how do I support you? We need Mm -hmm. to stop. There's a degree of leadership development that is important, right? We need to teach. We need to develop. But then we also need to build a mechanism to support. And that's where I think we're starting to get there. I know the Air Force has adopted a coaching program, um, but there's still so much work to be done. And like you said, part of that support can come from helping channels, helping professionals, whether that's counseling, whether that's talking to the chaplain, whether that's coach. Those things aren't just there when we're really struggling. They can be there when we're just you know, we don't have to be like deeply depressive struggles. Life daily is hard enough that we could all use a little support. Yeah. It's like, it's like working out. I mean, I can't expect to be in shape if I'm not working out. The same goes for like emotional intelligence and, and that whole arena. Um, Mm -hmm. And yes, squadron commanders. Wow. Yes. Any commander is one of the got to be one of the toughest jobs in the world. And I got to be a commander's exec to Colonel Henderson. She was a new group commander and I got to, you know, get brought into that world. And eventually we became really close. And part of my job was just being there for her because I realized it's lonely at the top. Like when you're at the top, there's not a whole lot of peers. Your peers are far, very far and few between. So as this person working alongside of her, I was like, I need to be this person's friend. Like, I just need to be there for her, mm-hmm. you know, not just on a work side, but a personal side too. someone to vent to someone she can trust. Um, and I did that for the other two squadron commanders too. I just pop in their office and just check on them and just let them take a break and just talk and vent. And cause yeah, I, I felt like I, I needed to get their back, you know, you know, but I often think like, I, I think a lot about our NCOs as well, because man, that's a hard job too. Like you've, you're young, you don't have a ton of practice. You don't have a ton of skill. And one day you're one of the boys, one of the gals. And the next day, like you have to be in charge of this, this gang, you know, and, um, do they feel supported? Do our senior NCOs feel supported? And we don't need a big program to do that. Like we just have to create a culture where we learn to support one another, learn to lean on one another. I'm not great at asking for help. So I'm going to put some of that onus on the individual too. Like, how do I ask for help? Like, Hey, I do just need to vent or, Hey, I'm really struggling with how to have this conversation. Can you, can we, can we walk through it? Man, nothing is as powerful as empathy, teaching people how to support one another with empathy. That'd be a game changer. Yeah, it's 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 easy. Like what I've learned is it seems tough to criticize. It seems like that's the tough thing to do and the brave thing to do is to criticize or come at someone. But to me in reality from what I've learned, like that's easy compared to telling someone what you love about them. Mm. That is actually what takes the most courage. 
it takes a ton of courage to say, who do you want to be and how do I support that versus who do I want you to be? My third favorite quote, and I think this kind of symbolizes like my day-to-day life is courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Also a quote by Brene Brown. I probably need to read some other authors one of these days. But her work has changed my life. No, she's Um, awesome. I'm right there with you. But courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. And what that means is don't put on the armor to protect yourself because you're afraid of judgment, ridicule, um, and criticism. Like, this is who I am. It goes back to the gifts and the strengths. Like, this is who I am. These are my strengths. These are my shortcomings but I'm not going to hide them from the world. And that is courage. So courage really begins with saying, I get to be exactly who I am and see where the chips fall. I like that. You have to be brave. Yeah. So, okay. Third question. (laughs) And I think this is what we'd all want to know the story on how you met Brene Brown (laughs) and ended up Uh, in her book. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, uh, I'm sometimes I'm still shocked. Like I had to re-listen to it. I was, um, I was listening to it again a couple months ago to prepare for some work I was doing. And I was just listening to it while I was like running around the house and it got to the section in the book that I'm in. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like that's me. So how I ended up meeting Brene, uh, so I, you know, been a big fan of her work since about 2010, um, had taken group command in 2016, was using not the Dare to Lead program, but another program she had at the time called Daring Leaders, was using that program as a leadership development tool with my six squadron commanders. And we would sit down once a month and go through the videos that were provided and it had worksheets with like discussion questions. And so we would talk through the questions and we did that once a month for two hours. And like, that was our leadership development team building activity so that we could have the kind of conversations that we've been talking about, right? Like these conversations that really allow us to kind of go deep and understand like what's driving us to show up as the leaders we're showing up as. A lot of people out there knew I was a big Brene fan a PA officer that I've known for years, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Becky Heisey was out at Luke Air Force Base and she sends me a note one day and says, you're never gonna believe who's coming to Luke. Brene is coming to Luke. And I was like, what? I'm her number one fan. Like, doesn't she know that? Like, I've got the big styrofoam number. Like if she's going number one fan. And I'm like, if she's going anywhere, why isn't she coming here? Like, how did she end up at Luke? So um, everyone goes to Luke. I know. I know. Well, everyone, this just goes to show you, like, take a chance, right? The wing exec, like just cold called, emailed her and was like, Hey, we, we want you to come to Luke. And she happened to be doing an event in Arizona at the same time and was like, yeah, I'll come to Luke. So um, Becky calls me and says, she's coming to Luke. I happen to know the wing commander. I called the wing commander and I said, um, we've been using her program for two years. It would be a great culmination of our time together to be able to come out and see her in person. And he said, yeah, come on out, bring your commanders out. So I went and talked to my wing commander and said, I'd love to take my commanders. Keep in mind, like I'm taking the entire MSG leadership, right? 
we're going off the base. So we flew out to Luke, attended her in-person um, program. And during one of the breaks, uh, I went up to side note, give her like this little gift I made her because I'm that cheesy. Um, <laughs> and so I, I went that. up, to, I went up to present this thing I made her and shared with her the story about the card. Right. You know, I told her like, I just want to thank you. And if I can share with you what this means to me and I did. And of course, you know, I was tearing up and she was tearing up and my commanders are looking at me like Colonel Halfill has lost her marbles. Um, and then wow, you just I, let it, you, you saw that that was your moment to really <laughs> let her know how you felt and you just went after it. I, I appreciate that. That's a boss move. <laughs> or crazy. Like, can someone call security? No, and <laughs> I'm, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> so, so I'm so right there I, with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just said, if you ever want to know, and my commander started sharing with her what the conversations meant to them. You know, I tell people all the time, like the Dare to Lead program is amazing. It's not the end all be all. Brene Brown is unbelievably insightful and and incredible, but also there's a ton of other people out there we also can learn from, but the material allowed us to have conversations that are life-changing. And, you know, they shared with her the conversations, how they affected their, their parenting and their marriages, and most certainly the way they engage their airmen. And I just said to her, if you ever want to know some stories about what that looked like for us, please give me a call. And, uh, and she did. And so I shared with her a couple stories that I, by grace of luck had shared regularly. So they were packaged nicely. <laughs> and, you know, she took the loneliness story, which was really, I'm so grateful. You know, there were the other story. One of the other stories I tell a lot is about race and how hard it is to have the discussion on race. But you asked me earlier, like, what was one of my most, what was one of my proudest moments in the air force? Um, it wasn't that I was in the book, but it was that that story was in the book and the number of people who have reached out to me since then to just say, thank you, because I could see myself in that story and I got help, or I could see myself in that story. And I reached out to someone, I could see the leader I wanted to be in that story by really leaning into the hard moments. And so if that story isn't about me, I mean, actually, if you read the story, it kind of highlights like how terrified I was and how inept and unprepared I probably was for that conversation. But the fact that the conversation is, is getting kind of like front and center out there. So people know that we have to get really clear on emotion, that it wasn't just about being tired, but that people were lonely and how much, because we don't have that granularity on the emotional experiences we're having, we often communicate them as something like tired. And if we communicate a feeling of loneliness using a language like tired or a word like tired, we lose an opportunity to address a root cause. We lose an opportunity to address the thing we really need to address. So I'm grateful the stories in the book, whether I'm associated with it or not, I'm so grateful the stories out there because I know it has helped people get help. 
Yeah, I love that. And when you when people like you put something out there, you don't you don't know what to expect, right? You don't know how people are going to react. And then when you get messages like that, it's really special because like it kind of opens your eyes to how many people like have things on their minds or on their hearts that they're just withholding, you know, and yeah. you kind of gave them like an insight into your life and it, they were able to connect with that. I made a video about how I stopped drinking alcohol because it kind of took a bad path in my life and I don't, and I don't do it anymore. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to share that story. So I shared that whole story didn't know what to expect, was really on the fence about even sharing it. But I was like, you know what? Someone's going to, someone would have, even if it helped one person, I'm going to put this out there. And the amount of messages I got were unreal. Yeah. How many messages I got about like, thank you. I thought I was the only one that connected with me. So like, once I saw that, it was like, holy cow. Like, I'm so glad I put that out there now. Yeah. Um, why don't you run us through that story? That's from the book. Sure. Um, so uh, it was while I was the MSG, I was out one day talking to a group of our airmen from our comm squadron. And I had been there to present an award. And at the end of the award presentation, I said, you know, who has some questions? And this airman raised his hand and he said, ma'am, um, what is the ops tempo going to slow down? Because like, whew, we're tired. And I said, yeah, I, I hear you. Like, I know we ask a lot of you. And I said, who's tired? You know, the whole squadron raises their hand. There's probably about 40 people out there that maybe 35, 40 people out there that day. And everybody raises their hand. It was hot. You know, we were sitting there like, yeah, let's, and we're tired. Not only that, but the heat's like driving us crazy. And, um, and so I said, yeah, I hear you. Like, we ask a lot of you. You know, we've been at war for 20 years. Uh, I had just come from Air Mobility Command where I sat in with the four star as wing commander after wing commander told him the same thing. Like our airmen are really tired when we're not, you know, we're not deployed or we're not at war, we're not deployed. We have an exercise. We don't have an exercise. We have training when we don't have training, we have an inspection. And it's just, you know, sometimes it can feel like it's one thing after the other. And I said, um, so yeah, I, I hear you. And I said, but you know, I had just read an article like three days prior in the Harvard business review. And it was talking about this organization that was going into these five companies that were reporting high levels of exhaustion. And it wanted to understand what was going on in these companies that they were reporting such high levels of exhaustion, like what was happening in their ops tempo with their employees, with their procedures. And so it spent months really digging into these companies. And what it found at the end of that time was not that people were tired, but that the employees were lonely. And so I asked them that day after sharing that story with them, I said, if I were to ask you today, instead of who's tired, who's lonely, how many of you would raise your hands? And to be honest, like I asked it slightly rhetorically, like I didn't really expect anyone would answer because I think we both know and can feel like sometimes to say like, I'm lonely, it's not, it's not an emotion or a word that we are culturally that's culturally acceptable to always say, right? In some ways, there's a degree of shame associated with that being lonely. And sometimes when we look at people and we think, oh, you're lonely, we don't really know how, you're not going to cling to me, are you? You're not going to like suddenly become like, I can't get you, you know, I can't get my own space. And so I think sometimes we ourselves get a little afraid of it. And so I stood there and I said, if I were to ask you, instead of who's tired, who's lonely, how many of you would raise your hands? And about 15 people in the group raised their hands that day. And, 
you know, I stood there not really knowing what to do because I thought I just opened a can of worms that I don't know how to address. Like, I don't know what to do, but at this exact same time, what I did know is that as a commander and as a leader in our Air Force for more than 20 years at that point, I had spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how we address this problem with suicide and how we reach our airmen who are making this ultimate decision. And, and so I had these two flash thoughts of, I don't know what to do, but I know I have to do something because if you tell me you're tired, what I'm probably going to do more than likely is to say, go get some rest, take some leave, and I'm going to send you off. But if what's really going on is you're lonely and I send you away because I didn't ask the right question, then I'm potentially exacerbating the very thing we are trying so hard in our Air Force to address. And loneliness is a huge contributing factor to people who who decide to take their lives. And so I knew I had to do something, but I also knew like I wasn't equipped. And there was such a part of me that day that wanted to be like, where's the mental health professional so I can bring them in to deal with this. But I also realized in that moment that as leaders, like we have to get comfortable with this, with the language of emotion that makes us so uncomfortable. Like we have to more than anybody get comfortable with the messiness, with the discomfort, with the uncertainty of the language of the emotions we're feeling because I had an opportunity there that day to talk to them and reach an airman at a point when maybe they weren't so far down that path, when I could still get them help before they were so far gone, I wouldn't, I'd have less of an opportunity. And so we had a great conversation, but when it really hit me was in that moment, I realized like, I need to tell more people this story. And I started telling that story everywhere I could. I went to wing stand-up and I told the story. Next time I went out to another squadron, I told the story. When I'm at the headquarters for the MSG conference, I tell the story. When I get an opportunity to go speak to a group, I tell the story. And what I saw in those moments, the first few times I started to share that story was I would see a person in the back of the room nodding their head as I was telling it, right? Like you could tell they were connecting. I would see people tearing up, which told me in that moment they were experiencing it themselves. And they knew, I knew from those moments on, like I have to tell this story because like you with not drinking, we don't talk enough about the truth of our experience and we feel alone. We feel really alone in, in our loneliness, in our uncertainty, in our grief, in our sadness, in, in our insecurity. And so, um, yeah, it just, we had a great conversation. And then, and, and then the second part of that is I had a commander come up to me and she said, you know, ma'am, I talk to my airmen all the time about being disconnected. And I said, disconnected, that feels like such a sterile word. Like if you're an airman and I say, are you feeling a little disconnected? Like, does that feel like I see you? But if I say, are you lonely? That, can you just feel it? Like it's a different yeah. feeling. It's a humanity. It says, I see the human in you, the human in me 
understands the human in you. And it's a different way of connecting. And I became really passionate about language and saying, we need to teach leaders the language of emotion so that we can help each other and our airmen and everyone step into that space to acknowledge it and not let it control us, to take back control over the emotions we feel and use them as data so that we can respond versus react. Wow. I love that you asked that question. Like you, that, that's a terrifying thing to ask a group of people, but like what I think is more telling is that people actually raise their hand, you know, yeah. like, like they felt safe enough to acknowledge something that would bring upon shame. You know, that's, that's hard to admit. Right. So the fact that, you know, I think the story is so powerful because it just opens your eyes to how such a simple question could connect with someone on such a deep level. Yeah. Here's something that wasn't in the book. And to be honest, I really struggled with sharing for a long time, but the truth is that story, the, the article in Harvard business review resonated with me for a reason, right? Like I read that article, I read hundreds of articles. Why did that one stick with me? Because I was suffering from that myself, right? Like I was experiencing a degree of loneliness myself. I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. So for 25 years in the Air Force, I was traveling by myself, you know, new assignments, new communities. Uh, as a female in the senior ranks, there were fewer and fewer of us the longer I was in. Um, and so, you know, and I love my male peers, but Let's be honest, most of the men aren't going to go home to their wives and be like, hey, hon, we have this great single woman at work we should bring over for dinner. You know, like that's just not yeah. happening. <laughs> and right. so I, I too was feeling really lonely. But here's why that story, I think, to some degree saved my life, because there was a day, a couple of days, actually, where I drove into my garage and the thought crossed my mind, just leave the car running, wow. just leave the car running and you won't have to experience this loneliness anymore. Leave the car running and it won't be so hard. And then, you know, I would, it, but the thought was fleeting. It scared me enough to go, wow, I really need to, I need to look at that and I need to think about it. But the truth is, like, I think we all have moments where we go, man, this is hard. And I don't always know if I can keep doing it. But that moment that day probably saved me because it forced me to start talking about it. And the more I talked about it, the more people came up to me and said, I'm lonely too. And I suddenly started to feel less alone right? Like we've got to be better about sharing the struggles we have as humans because we have them and they have for thousands and thousands of years. You go back and read any of the stoicism writing, right? It's all the exact same struggles we have today. But for some reason today, we think we have to protect against them and we have to hide them. And it shows that we're weak rather than we're human. So um, I didn't tell people that when that story was out, but that's that's the truth of why that moment hit me, why that article hit me, because I was really trying to figure out that space myself. Holy cow. Yeah, we're all in this together, right? So, and and I think it's it's kind of amazing that 
you know, you it, it makes sense why you had the courage to ask that question in that moment to your team, mm-hmm. right? Like you were feeling that yourself, you were going through it yourself. I think it's incredible that you were there for your team in such a vulnerable way. Mm, thank you. You know what I mean? And thank you for, for sharing that too. I mean, I think I'm lucky because, uh, you know, finding my way into this work where we get to have conversations about, I mean, I have conversations almost on a daily basis now about, you know, vulnerability and the, the shame we can sometimes feel when we think we're not enough or when we think we should play small. Um, I'm in a space every day now where I get to talk to leaders as a coach. Um, I, I get to talk to leaders about uh, where they struggle and the truth is like what pulled me out was just knowing I wasn't alone. And we can do that for one another without having to be in the exact same space. And it's called empathy. So through a series of events, I was able to experience empathy without having someone, you know, sit down and talking to someone, but over and over and over again, as people came up to me, as I talked to leaders, as I increased my coaching, as I went out and talked to people, I was flooded with stories that told me I wasn't alone. It was that feeling of not being alone that really allowed me to check the reality of the story I was telling myself, to really check the reality of the shame message I had going on in my head of I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough leader. I'm not a good enough PA. I'm not a good enough partner. I'm not, I mean, name it, right. We all have a not good enough story. You and I were talking about, you know, insecurity. Oftentimes it comes up the imposter syndrome. Like we've called it these things, but at its core is a narrative that says I'm not enough of something. And if we don't reality check that message, we start to believe it. And hearing other people's story helped me see like, man, we're all dealing with this. And so like, let's talk about it. Let's have the conversations that we need to be having. Definitely. And, and we talked about shame too. Brene talks about shame a lot. Let, let me step back for just a minute and kind of explain what shame is, right? So shame is really two narratives, not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not strong enough. I don't provide enough. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough parent. I'm not a good enough wife. Like whatever that I'm not good enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm too fat, right? Like all of these, I'm not pretty enough. Like men and women have these unbelievable shame narratives. So the first message is I'm not enough. And if you can get past the I'm not enough, and this is all Brene's work, right? If you can get past the I'm not enough, the second message you get is, who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are, Josh, to start a podcast? Who do you think you are to share your opinions? Who do you think you are, Didi, to get up on stage and tell people how to lead? Who do you think you are, Didi? You're only a public affairs officer. No one's, no one's going to want to listen to what you think about leadership, right? Like, this is what we tell ourselves. And we step into these spaces to do hard things. We first say like, there's no way I can do this. I'm not enough. And then if we can get past that, we go like, uh, who do you think you are? A little too big for your britches there, honey. Get back in line, right? Then, so we first got to know what shame is. Those are the narratives. Two, we all have it. 
we all experience shame on a probably pretty regular basis. And then three, the less we talk about it, the more control it has over us. Shame is the, I want you to hear this for a second. Shame is the highest correlated emotion with aggression, bullying, violence, drug addiction, alcoholism, and suicide. Wow. It's the highest core of all that. Yeah. It's the highest correlated emotion. The number one shame trigger at work, irrelevance. (laughs) And so we are perpetuating shame when we do things like, you're just a public affairs officer, stay in that box. We do things like perpetuate shame when we teach people they have to hustle for their worth. But here's what I really want you to hear. Shame is actually, it feels the same for all of us. It feels like some of us, you know, like when we think about, think about when you're about to get into it, like you're about to rear end someone. Unfortunately, this happens to me a lot because I'm a horrible driver and I'm never focusing. So I'm always like looking up and I'm like, ah, slam on the brakes, right? You know, that moment when you slam on the brakes and you can feel your body flush, like sometimes your hands get sweaty, you get tunnel vision, your armpits sweat. I get tunnel vision. I get like this, um, I can feel this tingling in my chest. That is actually a shame response because shame we actually respond to shame the exact same way we respond to trauma. And so shame feels like that. The narrative is I'm not enough. Who do you think you are? It physically feels like trauma. And um, it's actually categorized by gender. So the shame narrative for women is be perfect. Be perfect, look perfect, act perfect. The shame narrative for men is don't be weak. Don't be weak. Wow. Don't be weak. Think about how often in your life as a, as a guy, you were conditioned, like, don't be weak, like man up, get back in there. Guys don't cry. Like you big wussy with a different word, right? Like, yeah, it can be brutal. Yeah. That's the shame narrative that men hear. Now think about the problem we have in the military with suicide to predominantly male culture who are all embedded with this shame narrative of don't be weak. And then we say, get help. Like get help implies you're not strong enough to handle it on your own, which is completely contrary to the shame message most men have been getting their entire lives. So how do we get more aware of the shame narrative that men have been hearing their entire lives as we also try to convince them it's not weak to get help? that it is strong to seek support, right? Like we've got to get really clear on our messaging and on our, and leaders who can really understand why that is such a struggle for people, that competing narrative. Anyway, so that's what shame is. Shame resilience. And by the way, again, I want to give credit. This is all Brene Brown's work. And if you're, if you're interested in shame, she's got a great Ted talk out there on shame. The power of vulnerability TED talk is certainly um, watched more, which tells you something about our culture, right? Like we're terrified of digging into the shame, but the shame TED talk is amazing. And so shame resilience is being able to notice shame, identify shame, reality checking the messages of that I'm not enough, and then actually naming it. So you said at the very beginning, like, oh, we don't really talk, like just when we were just talking just now, like we don't really talk about shame, 
once I learned what shame resilience is, that I have to notice it, I have to identify it, I have to reality check it, and I have to name it, that is when I said I will start using the word whenever, like, it's the word and I'm going to use it. And if it's uncomfortable, I get it. It's uncomfortable. But if we don't get comfortable with naming it, we will never be able to get to the root cause that having shame leads us to. Yeah. I love that. I'm asking you this stuff too, because I'm learning right, right. As we're talking now, because like my, I've had horrible negative self-talk, like brutal. I almost didn't start this podcast. It's funny you use that as an example because I had that negative self-talk. Like I, I listened to another, like a peer of mine's podcast. I thought he absolutely crushed it. And I thought like, who am I to, to like, look what he's doing. Like, I can't do that. Like, why yeah. would I even try this? And I almost didn't do it because of that. And it's crazy to think that like we could limit ourselves and hold ourselves back like that. So the, the negative self-talk is brutal. I mean, it yeah. can, you can destroy yourself from within with yeah. that negative self-talk. You could create narratives that aren't even real. You know, it's just your yeah. distorted view of things. And, and yeah, I've, I've, I think we've all been down that path and it's not fun. And I think the more, you know, we can learn about how to recognize that and stop it from happening. I think that's huge. Like yeah, I'm trying yeah, to learn that is. and bring that to my work center. Let's go. You know, what's funny is I actually have a presentation that I deliver on and it focuses on connection and it talks specifically about connection and as, as the product of empathy, but that empathy, um, that, con that connection is actually destroyed, right? It's, it's destroyed by shame. And empathy is like the fast track to connection. And so we have to understand empathy, shame, and vulnerability as the means how, how we navigate those two emotions. And I'm so excited because I go out and I speak about leadership in general, mostly about like, who are we as leaders? What's that inner work? Shape that inside space so that we can connect socially on the outside and lead, you know, from an outside perspective. But the, the second one is really talking about these emotions, but how do we as leaders get really comfortable with that language? And that one seems to be the one that most people right now are requesting more. Like people really do want to understand how do we change, how do we change some of the things we're dealing with? And if you want to talk about not just the Air Force, but so many of the challenges we're seeing in our world right now, whether it's whether it's um, mental health rates rising, whether it's what we've been dealing with with COVID and the uncertainty of COVID, whether it's the racial um, injustice and racial tensions we're trying to address in our society right now. Um, so much of these things, uh, toxic leadership, not just in the military, in, in, you know, in culture, so many of these things have shame at the root. And having honest conversations, like people want to know how to have conversations to, to really navigate those spaces. Yeah. We recently stood up a diversity and inclusion committee in our med group. Um, and there was a, an airman who was really interested in that and, and being a part of that. And I could tell he was hesitant about it, but during the first like zoom call we did, I encouraged him to, to join in with me 
we both dialed in, we both spoke on experiences. And I, I swear at the end of that, we were just fired up. Like mm. just being able to be in that, that safe space and like confront things that like, we, we don't confront like tough things. Like that's, we avoid it as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. Mm -hmm. So to take that time, like with our peers and to like get our thoughts and stories out there and like to do it side by side with him and to like have him be comfortable enough to like share like his own journey. I, it was, it was heartwarming. It was very, very heartwarming. And like, I could see the progress like unfold with this meeting, just this one meeting. Yeah. I mean, just let me, I just want to say thank you. So one, thank you for not listening to the narrative in your head about not starting the podcast because you are changing lives by sharing your story. So thank you. And then two, thank you for having those kinds of conversations because I think so many, um, and I wouldn't just say airmen, I think so many people are looking to people who can show them how to do it. So thank you very much for that. I'm proud Dee, of you. Thank you. Dee Dee, what? You're proud of me? <laughs> oh, dang, I can do anything now. <laughs> You kind of remind me of Marie. I'm going to have to give a shout out to my other public health friend, uh, Marie Lamond. So um, I'm a big fan of you guys. Marie Lamond, if you're out there listening, we have to team up on a project. We can change the world. And yes. CD will back us. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Didi, so, okay, you just got done with 25 years. 25 years. Yeah. Like 24 years and like nine months. So I'm just rounding up. <laughs> Do you not age? Like what the heck you've been in 25 years. My God. You have just become my favorite person. <laughs> you have like a fountain of youth or something. Like I would never thought that you were in 25 years. That's incredible. Yeah, so congrats. Fast. Congrats for a job. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. And I just got to know, like, what's next for someone like you who's been a colonel in the Air Force? You're in Brene Brown's book. Like, what is next for you? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I'm lucky because um, finding that work has really opened up, um, has opened up a lot of opportunity for me because, um, so one, I got my coaching certification. So I'm actually a practicing coach. I have the unbelievable honor of getting to sit down with leaders and various organizations and really support them and kind of be that sounding board for them um, as they navigate challenges. Uh, I'm doing a lot of speaking on what leadership uh, using this lens looks like. What does it look like to use this lens uh, in a culture like ours? Um, and then I also am a dare to lead facilitator. So I spend a good amount of my time facilitating a three-day program called Dare to Lead, which is based on the um, research of Dr. Brene Brown. And it really does a deep dive um, into what she has found through, you know, years and years and years of research and data, about 400,000 pieces of data talking to leaders across the world about what, what courageous leader, leadership looks like. And when it boils down to it, it looks like four things. It looks like our ability to really rumble with vulnerability, right? Stay in that space of risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. It looks like really getting clear on our values and not just professing them, but living into them. And I will tell you, we should do another podcast just on values, but I will tell you like the values work was life-changing for me because it gave me a compass I didn't know I needed. And it gave me the compass I've been following and didn't even know I was following. So like awareness is key in that, right? The third part, like 
braving trust, knowing really what trust, what builds trust, but also like what really destroys trust in the smallest of moments. And then the fourth and final aspect is learning to rise that brave leaders, courageous leaders who can step in to do really hard things actually know ahead of time, they can get back up when they fall. And we do a ton of work in resiliency post fall, but what we really need is fortifying that shame resilience, that, you know, that resilience in general before, so that we have leaders who can step in to do the hard things because courageous leaders only step in because they know they can get back up when life kicks them in the butt. So, um, I have the honor and privilege of facilitating that work, which is amazing. It's like the most incredible conversations. It's three days of incredible conversations that I think are life-changing, definitely um, changed me as a leader. Wow. So like, how could someone be a part of that? Um, uh, so Air Force Global Strike actually uses the three-day program as part of their squadron commanders course. But if anyone wants more information, are you going to, sh- do you share information about like where people can find us? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. I could put it in um, the show notes is what they call it. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> basically a description of the episode and anything you want to put in the show notes, I can put in the show notes. Oh, that cracked me up a little. Um, <laughs> oh, anyway, yes. Um, anyone who's interested can certainly reach out to me. Um, I don't have a website up yet, but I'm working on it. Um, but I, uh, I work with P-Link leadership. So we, you know, we deliver the program. People can find me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to I'd be happy to help anyone navigate what that might look like. Um, It's an amazing program. And I will tell you, like, uh, I loved it before I left the Air Force. I love it even more now. I thought the conversations were important to have pre-COVID, post-COVID, post the year we've seen over the last year with civil unrest. Like, we need these conversations now more than ever. We need leaders now more than ever who don't let shame get in their way of doing hard things, who don't don't protect themselves from that feeling of vulnerability while also knowing what vulnerability looks like without going too far, right? Like there is a boundary and balance. I have a lot of leaders who will call me up and be like, so I just need to like be vulnerable. I just need to like show up and be like, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable with you now. And I'm like, It's not really how it goes. And so we have a real misunderstanding about what vulnerability is and what it isn't, right? And so, um, but we need leaders who can step into that now more than ever. Like our world really needs leaders who can step into hard places and do so courageously. Yeah, and you know, a unique thing that we both share is that we've been to multiple bases, right? Yeah. Like nobody moves city to city job to job like we do like that's crazy when I was running the honor guard at Whiteman and, and all the success we had I was convinced that I had cracked the code mm. like I figured this out let's go right and then I got to Eglin and it was like <laughs> because I was afraid I was afraid uh you know I, I had to relearn my job you know, I made yeah. a bunch of, I was making mistakes. I, I was afraid to ask dumb questions. You know, I'm a master sergeant. Should I, it, it's not, I felt so embarrassed to ask like things that I've forgotten 
or that have changed. And suddenly I was struggling. Uh, You know, I went from here to holy cow, like this is hard. Like I, and then the certain different personalities that I was running into just the whole, it's so different base to base situation to situation. You truly can't figure it out. You know, what would you recommend to someone like me who has done, has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly and is new and is struggling uh, in a new work center with different challenges when they came in thinking that they were going to absolutely crush it. What would you tell someone like me? I would tell you that it's, uh, (laughs) you know, you were telling your story and I was like, uh, yeah, that was pretty much my last assignment in the air force too. Right. Like I was, I retired, you know, I was a graduated squadron commander, graduated group commander. And then suddenly I go to be the PA officer for the chairman and I hadn't been in PA for years. And so I felt lost. I felt, uh, and it was a crazy year too. Right. And so, um, I often thought the exact same thing. Like I'm a Colonel, I should know how to do this. And I'm asking these majors who seem to be like better at this than I am right now. And so it caused a ton of doubt and uncertainty. And so you've I, been through it. Yeah. Showed up badly. I so, got to hear this then I'm, I'm, you got me completely interested now. I need, I'm, I'm like, taking notes over here here's what I would tell you like I didn't listen to myself in this moment but I would hope that there isn't a single job we go into in the air force for any of us I would hope there isn't a single job where we go yeah I got this this is going to be easy no problem I could do this in my sleep because if we did that we'd be bored And then we'd be apathetic, right? And then we wouldn't be bringing our best selves. And so it's a pretty smart system that the Air Force is constantly putting you in a job that may be a little out of your comfort zone because it's by putting you in jobs that are out of your comfort zone that are going to push and grow and challenge you and build your confidence for that next time they put you in a job that's out of your comfort zone. <laughs> but every job you go into is probably, if, if you're doing it right, should be out of your comfort zone because that's how we grow. And so we grow into these jobs. And so what I would tell you is, yeah, welcome to the stretch. Like we have to get more clear on every job is a job we may not be familiar with. I'm going to share a story with you real quick. When I was at, uh, when I was at Barksdale, um, I had just been selected for group command. Uh, the, at the time, the sitting commander, Uh, called me up. Remember I said, I'm a public affairs officer by trade and like it or not, there is a cultural belief sometimes in our air force, or at least I've experienced it where people would be like, uh, you're a public affairs officer. How did you become an MSG? And so, or how did you become a squadron commander? And the underlying comment there is we don't think PAs can lead. Right. And so I, you know, I was used to that. I had experienced it several times. I had some people who were actually very explicit and say to me, I don't think public affairs officers can lead, which now I get to be like, nah, 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 nah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh, they can lead <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so, um, I forgot where I was. Oh, so, um, 
the the sitting commander calls me up to in theory congratulate me for being selected on being selected for group command and they say to me um I don't know why we're getting the public affairs officer. I guess you can help us with our strategic messaging. Oh my goodness. And so I said, oh, okay, right. And so I get an I get a shame narrative in my head of I'm not good enough. I, you know, I shouldn't be in this job. I shouldn't have been selected. And so I show up at that base with a narrative in my head of they don't want me. They don't mm. want me here. Right. And then I meet my new commander and there had been a change of command. And my new commander was amazing. One of the most incredible leaders I've ever had the honor of working with um, to this day, adore him. And so uh, I was in one of our very, like one of our first few 06 meetings and we're in that meeting. And every time, and every time I would give him an update on something happening in the mission support group, he would turn to the vice wing commander as if to validate is what she's telling me legit because the vice wing commander had been there. He was kind of the continuity. He had been there a year. Remember I'm new, the wing commander's new and he's turning to the vice wing commander. And if the vice wing commander gave him the nod, then he would be like, okay, thank you. And I noticed this. Now the story I have in my head is they don't want me. And then I see him validating everything I say with the vice wing commander. And so I start to do what I think most sane people would do. I start to get all like, oh, no, you didn't. And I start like just spiraling in my head, right? Like, isn't that the worst? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That is just torture when you're like, you're just picturing all these scenarios that are just never going to happen and how you would, what you would say or do. Oh. And so in my head, I'm like, if you don't want me here, I'll go. I don't need to put up with this. I'll go back to public affairs. They like me in public affairs. I don't need to put up with this crap. You don't want me here. If you're not going to trust me, like that's all going on in my head, right? Like that shame narrative, like, oh, it's creating some drama now. Mm. And so I, you know, over a couple of days, I work up everything. I get myself all spun up. I'm going to go into the wing commander's office and I'm going to say to him, like, if you don't want me here, tell me to go, blah, blah, blah. I go in, I sit down. I'm prepared to talk to him after that meeting. Like I have got my, you know, I've built my courage, spun myself up and I'm going to have a conversation with him. And I'm sitting there kind of stewing and I watch the operations group commander say something to him. And in that moment, I saw him turn to the vice wing commander and look for the same assurance he had been looking for when I gave him input. And what I realized in that moment was that it wasn't me, it was him. Like I'm a new group commander. I've never been a group commander. I don't know what it means to lead squadron commanders. He's a new wing commander. He's never been a wing commander. He's a B1 guy leading a B52 wing. There's all kinds of new stuff for him. There's all kinds of new stuff for me as an MSG. I, you know, CE, you know, calm, like all of those missions are new. I mean, I'm aware of them because I've been in the Air Force, but I don't know them. And I thought he is as new at his job as I am at my job. And we're all right now trying to figure this out. And so I realized like, ah, he's trying just as hard to get up to speed in his role as I am in getting up in my role. 
and it's got nothing to do with me. And I had created this unbelievable story in my head. And so I thought, I'm going to let it go for now. And then to be honest, like, I don't ever remember seeing it again. And so the truth is like the air force always puts every single one of us. I know like so many of my airmen would look at me as a squadron commander and think like, man, they have it all figured out. Or the squadron commanders look at the group commanders and go, wow, they have it all figured out. And group commanders look at the wing commanders and think, or the, you know, the one star or the two star, like they have it all figured out. But the big lie is like, none of us have it a hundred percent figured out. We all have different tools and skills and, and practices we're building along the way that make us a little more prepared, but all of us are stepping into something new and all of us are being challenged to rise to that next level. And all of us are being asked to be the leaders we could be versus just the leaders we are. So like, we got to give each other some, we got to cut each other some slack. Mm, you made me feel a lot better. <laughs> Cause now I'm like, you know what? This is normal. Like, yes, I'm out of my comfort zone for a reason. That's the intent. Yes. I'm not the only one out of my comfort zone. I'm one of many. And you know what works? Here's, here's the secret. Then the people who can be out of that comfort zone and get curious, ask for help, lean on others. They get through it. People who are in that comfort zone and armor up because they're terrified of it. They can't handle the uncertainty, the risk that comes with that. They armor up and they protect. They never get through it. It never gets easier. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I just want to keep talking to you. I don't, I, my battery's going to die and I'm like, no, let me know if it's helpful. We'll do it again. Cause I love it. Oh my it. gosh. No, like I'm legitimately learning, uh, you know, from you just like anyone listening would be. So it's been, it's been a really cool experience to spend time with you. Someone that I've read about, I've seen your videos and then mm -hmm. to actually hang out with you and talk with you. I had to put some that self-talk out of my head just to talk to you. I'm like, should I be talking to this person? I don't know. <laughs> Well, but, that uh, makes both of us, right? Like, I'm also like, <laughs> why would they want me on the podcast? Like, we all have this. Yeah, but honestly, you're, you're a freaking kick-ass person. You know what? You cussed on this episode, so I'm allowed to cuss now. Uh, and I'll just put the little explicit on the, on the episode, and, and then we'll be okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so honored that you took time to spend time with us, uh, me, and whoever is listening to just share your wisdom and, and, and all the insights of your 25 year career and just all the stories you have. And we're definitely having a part two, like 100%. Like, well, you talked about some other topics that you'd love to just kind of dive in on like the values and all that. And that's a big part of being a resiliency trainer is knowing your values. So I think that would be a perfect part two of our talk. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, since my battery's almost dead here, okay. What uh, is the last message that you would like to share with the audience? Final thoughts. Uh, I think my final message is um, I want to thank you for being brave and courage is contagious. And so the more we step in to do brave things ourselves, the more we give others permission to do the same. So I want to thank you for showing people what it looks like to bring their gifts to the world in a really brave and courageous way. So thank you. That's amazing. I'm really proud of you. 
Thank you, Didi. I'm proud of you too. Congratulations on your 25 year career. And tell Brene Brown that all of us here at the Hero Front Podcast love her books and we say hello. <laughs> yes, tell her Josh White said hello. Can you do that for me? Can I'll you do, do that? My best. Yes, I'll do shoot, my best. just say, hey, Josh White from the Hero Front Podcast says hello. She'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, why didn't he ask me? Why is he only asking you? I'd be like, I literally can't. I don't know how. <laughs> um, <laughs> Didi, thank you so much. It was an honor. Thank and you. guys, this was the hero's journey of Didi Halfhill. Y'all take care. We're out. Awesome. What's up, Hero Front fam? Josh here. And I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to that episode in its entirety. I owe you a hug. And the next time I see you, let me know how many hugs I owe you and we'll get after it. Before you turn me off though, I want you to subscribe on YouTube to the Hero Front Podcast and give me a five-star rating on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. It would be much, much appreciated to get your love and support. Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on this Hero Front journey. And I will see you on the next episode. Let's get after it.